Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the failed leadership coup against Theresa May and where the Prime Minister's Brexit strategy is heading next. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, who's in Brussels, our Brussels Bureau Chief, Alex Barker, Deputy Opinion Editor, Miranda Green, and columnist, Robert Shrimsley. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, please subscribe to get it through all the usual channels every Saturday morning, or you could even leave us a nice review on the iTunes Music Store. So it was a tumultuous week for Theresa May. On Monday, she decided to delay the meaningful vote for her Brexit deal, seeing that she was on course for a big defeat in the House of Commons. That was then followed by the crucial 48 letters going in against her leadership and a vote on Wednesday evening against her position. And once again, the Prime Minister survives, she staggers on, and to coin a phrase, she will always be remembered for nothing has really changed. So George Parker, let's just begin with the meaningful vote on Monday this week. So this was long rumoured the point at which Theresa May was going to face down MPs in the House of Commons and yet in Downing Street they decided rather at the last moment they were going to lose this vote and therefore they weren't going to have it and that had some rather big consequences. Yes, indeed. Well, just to paint the picture of where I am at the moment, Seb, I'm standing in the Justice Lipsius building of the European Council, and I'm in a queue of journalists waiting to go to a Theresa May press conference, which is a bit of an unprecedented thing, but gives you an idea of the scale of the crisis that's engulfed the Prime Minister this week. And you're right, the week started with this meaningful vote being pulled. We were at a press briefing at 11 o'clock, being told she was confident she was going to win, and the vote was definitely going ahead. And literally... Five minutes later, she was informing the cabinet that the vote was being pulled and she was facing a disastrous defeat. So basically, I know it's an old cliche to say people have had their worst week in politics, but this has been a pretty grim week for Theresa May. It started with her basically losing the confidence of Parliament with this meaningful vote. Then she lost the confidence of over 100 of her own MPs, which we'll come to in a minute, in a confidence vote. And it ended up here in Brussels with her losing the confidence, effectively, of the European Council. So not a great week. Robert Shumsey, do you think she made the right decision to delay the meaningful vote? Because as George was just saying, it was taken rather at the last moment on Monday morning. You had Michael Gove on the radio saying 100% the vote is going to go ahead. There's no way we're going to delay it. And then two hours later, they delayed it. And what really annoyed the Conservative rebels is that Theresa May apparently told the EU before she told the Cabinet she was planning to do this. Yeah although I think the rebels are fairly easily annoyed. I think it's generally difficult to say whether she did the right thing until we're at the end of this process and know how it has played out. I think that had she called the meaningful vote, she would have lost extremely heavily. That would then probably have killed the deal completely. The deal does remain alive up to a point. Just and, and I think that had she lost as heavily as I think we all think she would have lost, she would still have found herself in a leadership contest by the end of the week. Perhaps Labour would have tabled its no-confidence vote first, but I think the leadership contest would still have come. So in the end, these are all 
monsters she's got to slay. They probably could have come in a different order, but I think they were all coming. So at this point, George, you said to the cabinet, this is my last throw of the dice, because if she'd had that vote and lost big time, which I think we could have taken as a given, as Robert said, it would have killed the deal, but it probably would have also killed her, that she would have had to resign or step aside or face a confidence vote anyway, because um, when you lose on such a big and substantial policy, you just can't really go on. And the cabinet, I think, really got that. That's the sense that I've had this week. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the um, the cabinet agreed with her judgment that you know the vote would have possibly killed her own career. It's complicated things here in Brussels, though, because there was an assumption among European Union leaders that she would have had the vote. She would have come over to Brussels. They would have had a sense of how much trouble the deal was in at Westminster. And then they could have made her contingent offers accordingly. The problem now, because she cancelled the vote, is that European leaders are worried that even if they were to make concessions now, which um, seems a little bit unlikely in the current climate, that she'll have a vote somewhere down the line in January and then she'll come back for more. In other words, what the European Union leaders are worried about is that having postponed the vote, Theresa May now thinks she could have two bites of the cherry and come back for a second set of concessions. And that's complicated the situation as we move into the new year. So this obviously annoyed people quite a lot, Robert. And we knew there were about 30, 35 or so letters of no confidence written about the prime minister and a lot more private ones and Eurosceptic MPs were saying at the end of last week they thought it was about the 40 mark. Anyway, on Tuesday evening, the threshold was passed at about 9.30pm and when the Prime Minister arrived back in London, Sir Graham Brady, who's head of the 1922, that's the trade union committee essentially for Tory backbenchers, went to see the Prime Minister and said, we've got the 40 letters, we're going to need to have a confidence vote. And that began that process, which has been talked about for weeks and months and finally they got to that point. But for the Eurosceptics, it didn't really quite go to plan, not least about the timing of the vote. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much they even they are really in control of events, although they like to sometimes claim they are. They forced the confidence vote. I think many of them thought they might actually win. For a while, it was my belief that they could get to 48, but the thing that was going to stop them was they thought they would lose too badly and then it would all be over. I think they clearly scared everybody very, very seriously. And as you say, the Prime Minister did a couple of things to try and secure her victory. Firstly, she brought the vote forward. This vote could have been held off until, say, Monday, if you thought that calling around a constituency chairman was going to shore up support for her. They thought the opposite. They thought support was clearly going to ebb away the longer it went on. And so they rushed it forward. The second thing is, as you mentioned earlier, this extraordinary decision to go into a leadership vote promising that you're soon going to stand down. If you think about the actual numbers in the vote, 117 against a 200 for her, that means that basically little more than 40 MPs turning the other way would have beaten her. And I think when you look at that promise she gave and the speed of the contest, you have to conclude that all the people around her were very, very seriously worried about this contest. They thought either that she could actually lose or that she would win by such a negligible margin that it would be tantamount to the same thing. And I think this came close to succeeding. I know it didn't, and I know she's there now for another 12 months if she wants it, but I think this was a lot closer than even the numbers suggest. Absolutely. And these things, George, are all about expectations management. And there was a lot of briefing and counter-briefing going on throughout Wednesday with ERG. This is the European Research Group of Brexit-supporting MPs. They're saying, well, if we get 80, she has to go. And then in the end, they got 117. And generally, it was thought that if it was over three figures, it would be a pretty big blow to the Prime Minister, which it was. But 
by making this pledge to say she will not fight into the next general election. She seems to have saved herself, but it was a very odd sort of decision to do, as Robert says, if you weren't genuinely worried you were going to lose this thing. No, I think that's right, and uh, I agree with Robert's analysis of that. But bringing the vote forward, I think, was a bit of a masterstroke. Graham Brady, the chair of the 22, as you mentioned earlier, helped her considerably by allowing the vote to take place in a you know, very, very short time frame, a matter of hours. It meant that her critics weren't really able to mobilise. They were a bit disorganised on the morning of the confidence vote. Downing Street um, were sort of thinking they were lucky with their enemies. You had a succession of mainly white, middle-aged men saying exactly the same thing in front of the TV camera. So they were relieved that the rebellion didn't appear to be a more broadly based one. It, it still, it looked essentially like a, an attempted coup by the Eurosceptic wing of the party, and that helped Theresa May. But yes, you know, I think losing the support of but more than a third of your party is really bad. It could have been worse. I suspect if she won just by a margin of one, I think people around her might have still said, you have a duty to cling on and just keep ploughing on in the way that they did after the 2017 election. But her authority through the week has, has been shredded, for sure. And there was obviously a meeting of the 1922 committee just before the leadership vote began, George, and we were both there in the corridor watching Tory MPs come in and out. And it seems to be quite an emotional meeting. There was the typical banging of hands, heads, feet, whatever it was, to show support for the Prime Minister. And all the whips had done a very good job to make sure there was lots of support in in the room there but it does seem to have been quite an emotional one and the key point of this 117 number is it's not just the ERG and the Eurosceptics who are against Theresa May the middle of the Tory party and even some Remainers clearly voted against the Prime Minister Yeah that's right I thought the choreography of the day was about as good as it could have been from Theresa May's point of view she made a pretty good performance in it Commons question time the whips as you say had got all the sort of loyalists around to cheer and drown out Jeremy Corbyn. She was less assured at the 1922 committee. You know, I think she was a bit hesitant. Certainly the idea that she was floating the end of her political career was a sort of an emotional moment. But you're right. In the end, though the faces of the rebellion were white Eurosceptic men, clearly the rot had set in further down, the, down there. And Theresa May, by offering up the end of her career and saying she won't fight the 2022 election, well, in the end, it's a fairly modest concession because at the moment in Downing Street, they're looking to see whether she can survive into January. It's as bad as that. One thing about this contest was striking. George and I was, as you were said, standing together in Parliament, large parts of the day. And George and I stood together in Parliament for at least two or three previous Tory leadership elections. And I felt this one was one of the flattest atmospheres I can recall for a very long time. People were more energised than they'd been a couple of weeks earlier, but there was a sort of sense of fatalism about this. Nobody actually thought she was going to lose and nobody seemed terribly pleased that she was going to win. And there was a real sense of this, we're just stuck. Nothing's going to come of this. We're going to be no better off. We just have to get over this hurdle and then regroup. But we've sort of reached a total stalemate at the moment because Theresa May, as you say, is now there for the next 12 months. That doesn't mean she won't go. There are lots of discussions going on still amongst you sceptics about what they can do now. But one thing that did strike me, she's very beholden to the cabinet because the cabinet was one of the key things, in my view, that saved her. That soon after the contest was announced, cabinet ministers who are preparing their own leadership campaigns came out of the block straight away. People like Jeremy Hunt, Matt Hancock, Liz Truss, the list goes on and within about half an hour an hour every single cabinet minister had said I'm fully behind yeah, Theresa it was, May. It was, very, it was very touching to see the tweets of people who you know were busy installing phone lines and setting up their plans but I, I mean I think she's a prisoner of everybody at the moment and I don't see how she can get anything done 
without some opposition votes. And she at the moment is unwilling to countenance that except for her deal. As things stand, it seems to me we could be in for a month, month and a half of really appalling brinksmanship. This really, I think, now is heading down to the wire. And certainly as she is going to try and keep her deal alive to terrify people come February or late January, this is going to go on in the most excruciating way. And the country is going to be put on the rack financially in the markets. The currency is now going to be challenged because nobody can actually see the clear path out. Unless Theresa May is prepared to show a great deal more flexibility in her approach than she's previously been associated with ever showing. I don't think we should hold out too much hope for that. George, do you think finally that there's going to be any other leadership manoeuvrings on this? Because one, the real last thing the ERG have, like if the cabinet maintains support in Theresa May, then that's fine. But people in the ERG are now talking about a confidence vote. So at some point, the Labour Party, one assumes, is going to bring a confidence vote in the government. Now, traditionally, you would assume that all Conservative MPs would rally behind Theresa May. But the way that some Eurosceptics reacted to that vote um, in quite a sore loserish tone suggests that they could even abstain on that vote if not actively vote against the government. And then they would invoke the two-week period within the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which would allow them, in theory, to try and get rid of Theresa May and put a new leader in. It's a very risky strategy. But for people who are so dead set against Mrs May and her approach, it's pretty much the last thing they've got left they can do now if they don't want to do whatever she does, which is either her deal or could even be a second referendum. Yeah, I think it's an extremely risky strategy. I think what the Eurosceptics realise is that the tide is going to move against them quite quickly in Parliament. And one of the messages coming out of the European Council here is that at the end of this, European leaders are looking beyond Theresa May. It's almost like Theresa May has been written out of the script as far as they're concerned in some respects. And you've got European leaders speaking directly to the House of Commons and saying the House of Commons now needs to express a view. And I think that's the way that many members of the Cabinet think it's going to go now, that Theresa May's deal is probably dead. And now it's time for the House of Commons to express a view to see if the House of Commons can find a way forward. And that's a view taken by people like Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, Greg Clark, the Business Secretary. The Parliament will have to test a series of propositions. Now, the thing is, once things move out of the hands of the Prime Minister and into the hands of the Parliament, we know that House of Commons is primarily a pro-European legislature. That means any approach that follows from Theresa May's deal, if it's killed off, will be a softer form of Brexit than the one that she's proposing. And that's why, going back to your original question, Seb, Eurosceptics might be prepared to try to bring the House down in the hope that they can sort of seize power, get hold of the steering wheel on Brexit at the last minute and try and steer to the right. Because once Parliament's in control, they, the Eurosceptics, will lose control of the process as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a plausible theory and it would only take two or three of them to do it to make the difference. And there are two or three of them who are capable of it. I think if they are able to think even a couple of days into the future after that, they will understand they have handed power to people who are going to create a far softer Brexit or even no Brexit than they want. Their best chance of any Brexit is to keep Theresa May in power, even if it's not the Brexit they want. And it's also a nightmare on a different note for Buckingham Palace in this situation because the Queen spends most of her, has spent her whole career trying to avoid any kind of decisional political um, alliances at all on this. But were the House to lose the confidence of the vote, does she wait for the Tories to put another leader in who might have the confidence or does she call Jeremy Corbyn? And that's a very difficult one. I think it's a very difficult question. My instinct is that she would have to call Jeremy Corbyn, that she would actually have to say, you're the leader of the next largest party, can you form a government? And, of course, that would give him the option of trying to form a government, failing and forcing the election. 
So if the first half of the week wasn't particularly upbeat for Theresa May, the second half hasn't been much better. After emerging victorious but bloodied from that leadership vote, the Prime Minister went off to Brussels to try and get some extra concessions that might help her eventually pass her deal at some point in the year. And once again, it hasn't quite gone to plan for Mrs May. Alex Barker is joining us on the line from Brussels now, waiting to see the Prime Minister speak at Friday lunchtime. What happened last night? Because it looks as if there was a plan and the plan has once again gone wrong. Yeah, a very difficult night for the Prime Minister. And I think what we saw was the UK come with a pitch for these legal reassurances that was cast in a way saying, look, it's clarifications, we need reassurance on the backstop for Northern Ireland, but we're not changing the withdrawal treaty. We don't want to make any fundamental changes that would reopen this package. We're just going to supplement and add some legal additions that would basically assuage the concerns of some MPs in the House of Commons. And when the Prime Minister made this pitch to the room of EU leaders, they kind of heard something else. They heard a Prime Minister asking for a renegotiation process, for a limit effectively on how long the backstop could last, a 2021 target date, an absolute determination to reach a trade deal that would replace the backstop by that point. And there were various other requests that came in, and it left them thinking, actually, this isn't just a kind of cosmetic gloss on a package, a way for Westminster to really understand what's there. It's a fundamental change and it's a lot of ideas that we'd been batting off for many months. And we thought this deal was settled and it looks like something more substantial needs to be done in the Prime Minister's view to get it through the House of Commons. And they thought they wouldn't be able to provide that. Well, Miranda Green, it looks like another diplomatic faux pas from the Prime Minister here because the EU has been so clear they are not willing to reopen those negotiations from Angela Merkel to Jean-Claude Juncker. Everyone has been on the same hymn sheet here and there was talk of some kind of codicil, which I think has been the word of the week here, to add on to the existing deal. But the fact, as Alex was saying, they were looking for something far more substantial was always going to be rebuffed. And I can see why Mrs May wants to do this because she wants to aim high and try and get something as legally binding and as substantive as possible to get the DUP back on board. But now she's been left looking somewhat humiliated again and we're back to square one. Well, that's right. And codicil, of course, is what you do to a will. You know, and the question is, really, is this a sort of addendum to something that's dead anyway? Of course, because Mrs May survived the Tory party's vote of no confidence in her on Wednesday, the deal stays alive because she stays alive. And this is this peculiar situation that we're in now, you know, whether the two are as one, really, the deal and Mrs May. So the question is, is there anything she can do, having failed to persuade the EU to give her anything new and substantial that she can come back and offer to MPs? Is there anything that she can do to not just keep her deal alive, but get it through the Commons? So it's really down to, in a way, psychology as much as politics, what happens next. Can they, inside number 10, realise that although she survived, she is weakened, but so perhaps are the hardline Brexiters in the European Research Group on the right of the Tory party. So how can she now play it to attract other people? Or will they stick to this rather absurd and indeed dangerous 
game of saying we're going to push it down the line and down the line and down the line. So you're choosing essentially between no deal, crashing out, or this deal that nobody really likes. She's going to have to move on some of it, I think, and she's going to have to soften. The question is, can she do things that will bring more people on side? Possibly they've been very, very bad at reaching out to Labour MPs. But there's a lot of back chat at Westminster. There's a lot of cross-party activity going on. Can she offer something which will get her deal as an interim through the House of Commons, perhaps by promising a second referendum, perhaps by promising something else. And that seems to be where the action is now. You know, what parliamentary games can be played to sort of use bits of the Labour Party against each other. She's very unlikely, of course, to manage to get Jeremy Corbyn to back anything. But there are people on the on the Labour benches who seem to be willing to do deals. The other question is whether the government falls anyway because if the Labour Party which has got a lot of pressure on it to act it's been very silent all week if they act in the House of Commons against her government and bring a parliamentary no confidence motion will people on the Tory side back the Labour motion to bring down their own Prime Minister? Because Alex that strikes me exactly about where we are at the moment that trying to hope to get something else from Brussels to try and get this deal through just looks very unlikely and there's been reports on Friday that uh, the way Mrs May acted in this summit meeting as you said earlier was very unhelpful and also that the use just really run out of patience here. Do you think there's any any prospect of anything else coming either now or in January that's going to help her get the deal through? Just on the how the Prime Minister handled this, first of all, there's a lot of echoes of this Salzburg summit in September that was another kind of complete diplomatic disaster for the UK. But there, I think, they positively made mistakes. Here, I think that the problem was more the hopelessness of her position as some of the EU saw it. And you had the Danish Prime Minister make a point as he emerged, actually in the room and as he emerged as well, which is to say the UK has to do its homework. And he didn't mean just the Prime Minister. He meant, for instance, when Denmark faced a similar position in 1992, they'd knocked back the Maastricht Treaty. They had to find some way to ratify it and renegotiate something. But they had a process in Denmark to bring together cross-party support for a compromise package that was realistic. And then they brought that to Brussels and said, can you help us with this? And it worked. And I think a lot of the EU leaders are starting to think, look, we can throw concessions into this bottomless pit in Westminster, have a stab at what may or may not work, what could win 10 or 15 votes. But really, it's the UK's responsibility at this point to come with a consensus on what will pass this withdrawal agreement that the EU would then be able to start talking about. And to get to that point, you probably need to have a vote. And I think the impatience was very plain to see. And this actually goes back, Alex, to something that George said earlier on the podcast, which is that the idea of having that meaningful vote was meant to happen on Tuesday was a sort of clearing of the air in Westminster because people talk about opinions and votes and rebellions, but nobody really knows. The fact that's now been delayed, possibly as late to January the 21st, I can see why that is frustrating from Brussels' point of view, because as you said, it's a prospect of coming back again for even more. But one thing to put to both of you really is, does this now mean that once again, the chances of a messy no-deal exit have increased? Because if this process just keeps on fiddling and nothing changes, then that remains the default option for March. I'd make two points. First of all, 
the EU saw Theresa May's strategy as trying not to just push MPs towards this precipice of a binary choice between her deal and no deal, but the EU as well. The later this was dragged out, the more it made their position a bit more awkward as well. If there is going to be a moment of failure for this deal, they'd prefer it earlier rather than later. And that also was part of the reason why they didn't want to allow this process to open up with a, an open-ended conversation about tweaks that could be made to the package. They want to make sure that if they do offer concessions, that they're pretty decisive and that they would work. And fundamentally, they were here in Brussels a little more than a fortnight ago, called together on a Sunday. Half the leaders in that room don't really care that much about Brexit. And there they anointed a deal that was supposed to be the last word, the best possible, and they were back again talking about ways to change it. And they didn't want week after week of negotiations and another summit in January and being drawn into this kind of melodrama in Westminster. They want something more clear and they want it soon. I wouldn't disagree with all of that, but I would say that it's possible that the European Union didn't fully understand Mrs May's political difficulties and the impossibility of what she was actually facing in the House of Commons, because it's not just the civil war in her own party, which, as we know, has gone on for decades and has now kind of reached fever pitch. It's also this question of having a very complicated situation on the opposition benches. You know, the alliance with the DUP, a Labour Party leadership who, frankly, would like to see Brexit done and done by the Conservative Party so they get none of the blame for it. Because, as we know, Corbyn and Macdonald would quite like the whole thing to be over and done with before they can build socialism in one country here in the UK. So it is actually a genuinely impossible situation here in, in Westminster. And I think this accusation that apparently um, Jean-Claude Juncker cast at Mrs May that offended her so much that the UK needs were too nebulous and too unclear and that they should have, as Alex has said, done their homework like the Danes when they needed extra help. It is really, really difficult to see what would have satisfied because I personally don't think anything would satisfy the people who were out to get Mrs May on Wednesday. It's not actually a question of coming back with something that would have worked. So I think in a sense it is all now as to what she can achieve, if anything, in the House of Commons. On this question of whether no deal becomes more likely, I mean, it gets more frightening with every week because it is, of course, a real possibility. I don't think that with her authority so weakened, she'll be able to push it beyond the end of January. I think some action would be taken, actually. Now, it's very unclear what, because as we've discussed many times on here before, you need to have a positive proposition around which the House of Commons can unite. And finally, Alex, what do you think is going to happen next from the EU side of this equation? Because obviously, as you said, it's not gone well this week and I'm sure discussions will continue behind the scenes next week and over the holidays and into the new year. But as Miranda said, that vote's going to come at the end of January and she's going to want something. Hmm. Uh, It's hard to tell. Uh, I mean, it's quite hard when the top table of the EU has kind of drawn a line under this discussion process and it explicitly said we're not going to have a kind of open-ended chat running up to the vote in January. I don't think it's just a negotiating position where, you know, on January 2nd we'll be back in a negotiating room trying to work out these legal assurances. It would be harder to get kick-started 
than it seems. And finally, Miranda, I guess the other thing, as you referenced earlier, is there is more chatter about a second referendum. And of course, as we've talked about many times before, this is not a straightforward process. No one has any idea how or when it would take place, how you would extend Article 50 to have the time to do that. I don't even know what the question would look like, what would be acceptable to MPs. And we have no idea that it would come with a decisive result that would unlock this parliamentary stalemate at this point. But at the same time, I've heard people in Downing Street are very privately saying, if this deal gets voted down, we can't have no deal. We're going to have to do something. And that may be a second referendum. There's been talk about putting May's deal versus Remain to the public, which I think would be wholly unsatisfactory and would probably lead to some kind of boycott of the referendum because Brexit would say there's not a real Brexit on the table here. There's been talk of a two-stage referendum where it would be, do you still wish to remain or leave? And if it's leave, do you want to have May's deal or no deal? And of course, as we both think, if you have no deal on the ballot paper in some case, then that probably does become one of the very likely options to win. So I think as the stalemate continues, the chatter about this is only going to increase. Yeah, it's the only idea at the moment which has got any momentum behind it. This is partly, of course, because there's been a very effective campaign to hold a second referendum and which has been pushing everything to the side as it sort of motors along. Including Norway, Including Norway, Brexit. that's right. So so you have, you know, Tony Blair at the vanguard of a lot of powerful voices saying you have to replay the referendum again. And then any sort of compromise which had been being nurtured on the Tory backbenches with a lot of cross-party activity, for example, going to the European Economic Area and EFTA, the so-called Norway Plus option, that has effectively been killed by the campaign to hold a second referendum. So, I mean, I would just say if they get what they wish for, let's hope they've put as much energy into a referendum campaign that might win it for them, because otherwise we might be, you know, into real serious no-deal territory for another generation. I agree. And it's on the final point, I think every single thing that I've seen from the People's Vote campaign so far suggests there have been no lessons learned from 2016 and the campaign would be a mirror image and the result will probably be the same too. So on that happy note, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to George, Alex, Miranda and Robert for joining us. We'll be back next week for our final episode of the year and we're going to have a bumper hour-long review of all the ups and lots of downs of British politics over the past 12 months with our usual lineup of guests. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to see more FT journalism, then do see our subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.